0: And welcome to episode 0000133 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from what was described during the week as the 8th wonder of the world, Radio City Docklands, which of course is on the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, Now to change the tone a little bit, on uh, November 29, a 30-year-old Aboriginal woman died while in the custody of the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in Melbourne's West. Her family has asked that her name not be used, so of course we will respect that and extend our serious condolences to her four children, her family, her loved ones, and the wider Aboriginal communities that have been affected by this tragedy. Our thoughts also extend to her sisters inside Dame Phyllis Frost Centre during this very difficult time. She was, by all reports, loved by so many who are now left behind to mourn her death. She was a strong and compassionate Aboriginal woman who has been described by those fortunate enough to have had the chance to know her as an invaluable support and caregiver. I myself had the pleasure of meeting her earlier this year at the Beyond the Bars broadcast and her loss is gut-wrenching. Now, the reason I mentioned this at the top of the show is because 2021 has been a very tumultuous year. Yeah, it feels like years. Uh, cracks in society have emerged and widened as a result of the pandemic and the political politics played with the lives of millions of people have, well, pretty much created a, a t- tinderbox because 2022 is going to be an election year. And if you consider where we are in this place we now call Victoria, we're going into both a federal and state election. We've already seen the Prime minister soft signal those who would have the Premier strung up uh, in public on the steps of Parliament House here in Spring Street, Melbourne. Uh, we have a political class that stretches across the political spectrum that has shown itself prepared to do almost anything to retain or grab power. It means the likelihood that politicians and their soldiers in the media will likely try to exploit the divisions and amplify them and widen them where possible during the course of next year. Now, if you're aware of what's going on, then you can choose to either ignore or negate some of these things. I say ignore because that is a legitimate course of action, especially after the last two years we've had. To switch off and tune out can be good for your own well-being in so many ways, So I guess my main message here is um, look after yourself, because 2022 is going to be intense. Federally, it's probably the most important election of my lifetime, so no pressure. But whatever happens, we can't keep going the same way we're going, because we are at 500 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission was handed down in 1993. How does this tragedy relate to the election and politics? Well, it does because we're at a place in the, the political life of this country where our political masters are very good at dehumanising dehumanizing us. This, of course, impacts Aboriginal people. And it's one of the reasons black deaths and custody continue to happen on a seemingly, seemingly weekly basis. The humanity of it all gets lost in the towing and froing around the issue. The relegation of Aboriginal people as a problem to be solved, not a part of our community that enriches us all, is part of the reason why we are here. But let me tell you, the lives are real and the devastation is deep. So let's all think about that as we start to head into 2022. Coming up on the show tonight, I'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Gaps, who has got a new book out called Gadiyara, The First Wiradjuri War of Resistance. He is a, um, a fantastic uh, community-based uh, historian, and the book is uh, is a cracking read, and it tells you how far back the resistance goes against colonisation in this country. And then the second half of the show, because it's the second half, second last episode of the mission, I'll um, replay an interview I had with uh, Veronica Gary, who's got a book out called Black and Blue. It's one of my favourite interviews from the year, and it's one of my favourite books from the year as well. So. I thought it was wise to uh, to have a bit of a recap on that, and uh, listen to the splendour that is Veronica again. Uh, the best way to get in contact with me during the show is via my Twitter handle at Mr DT James. But for now, this is the mission, and you're listening to it on 102.7 Triple R FM.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about R, or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the R website at rrr.org.au.
0: Now, you might be listening to us uh, via FM radio, via 102.7 FM, or you might be listening to us through the National Indigenous Radio Service, or you could also be listening to us via Courier uh, Radio in, in Sydney, or you can be listening to us in the future via podcast. If you are in the future, do write to us and let us know what it's like. Thank you. Um, Now, to our first guest this evening. In May 1824, what can only be described as a period of all-out total Gadayara, or war in the Wiradjuri language, had begun west of the Blue Mountains. Relations between the Wiradjuri people and the colonists in the country around Bathurst had completely broken down, and the number of raids and killings occurring across isolated stock stations in the district had intensified. Gaddiyara traces the coordinated resistance warfare by the Wiradjuri under the leadership of um, Windradine and other such leaders as uh, Blotcher and Jingler that occurred in a vast area of central west New South Wales. The book detailing the drastic counter-attacks by the colonists and the punitive expeditions led by armed parties of colonists and convicts that often led to, to massacres of the Wurundjeri women and children. Uh, the author, Stephen Gapps, is a public historian working to bring frontier war histories into broader recognition as Australia's first wars. In 2011, he was awarded the New South Wales Premier's History Award for Regional and Community History, and his book, The Sydney Wars, Conflict in the Early Colonies, 1788 to 1817, was the inaugural winner of the Les Carlyne Literary Prize for the Writing of Military History. And I'm very pleased to say that Stephen is on the line now to talk about his new book, Gadiara the First Wiradjuri War of Resistance. Stephen, welcome to the mission. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for that. Um, this book comes on the back, or I guess it's a sequel in some, some ways, to to your book, Sydney Wars, which I guess uh, writing this book was a logical as well as a chronological next step.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, if you read the Sydney Wars, you kind of could have t- uh, told that, you could tell that there was a so- kind of dot, dot, dot at the end. That, that there's a connection um you know,
0: between what happened in Sydney and what happened west of the Blue Mountains, yeah. Um, describe the the people and the land, lands of the Mardi Barrajuri tribe.
1: Yeah, um, the Barrajuri is like a really large nation, and um, it's interesting that when the the colonists came across the Blue Mountains in eighteen thirteen they accidentally came across a, what could have been the most powerful and largest nation in the country at the time. Um, really, but they, they just hit the edge of it, you know, the, the northeast edge of Werritory country around the Bathurst Plains, um, which was a amazingly fertile landscape. The colonists were in raptures about, you know, the size of the fish in the rivers, um... The, the the grasslands and the plains that were the Bathurst Plains we know now that that kind of area in the Central West that is the winery regions of Mudgee and you know um, the farmlands are all around Bathurst that region but they what well, I guess what they couldn't tell was that um, until until you know only recently really we've been working it out um, well non Indigenous people have been working it out that this was a land that had been farmed and had been cared for, and agriculture had been going on there for tens of thousands of years. Um, so they came into this this place um, and just um, thought that this was ripe for stock, cattle and sheep, and started to um, to colonise. From eighteen fifteen, Governor Quarry comes over, um, comes out of the mountains, declares the township of Bathurst. And settlement begins west of the mountains in, in Wiradjuri country. And at first, I think one of the um, one of the surprising things in my research was this question about 1815. Macquarie comes across with a large you know, armed force um, and 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 settles, you know, establishes a township of Bathurst and, and brings in sheep and cattle it's not until the 1820s, it's like seven years later where real conflict breaks out. And so why? Why did it take seven years? Why, you know? um, And I guess one of the questions, one of the answers to that um, could well be that the the colony of Bathurst was so small in the beginning, it wasn't really a threat to what was this really powerful nation that outnumbered the colonists, you know, thousands to, to a couple of hundred colonists right up until 1820.
0: So Was yeah, that, that's
1: the kind of situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it, it's um, a fascinating situation because it took the colonists um, a number of years to to break through the Blue Mountains, didn't it, to get to to Wiradjuri country.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, they they um, I guess they tried their their their, their true and and uh, and their, their tried methods of um, of trying to find a way across, but it wasn't until they followed what happened to be. Aboriginal pathways um, that they worked out that you follow the ridgelines and, and uh, could get across. They also, um, convicts who had been working with Aboriginal people had been in and around the mountains well before the official crossing of the mountains, but, um, um, yeah, it wasn't until they worked out that there were Aboriginal pathways right across that um, that they came across in numbers
0: after that. Yeah, all you have to do really is just look at the land and it'll tell you its own story. Um, uh, So they got to, they established Bathurst and there was kind of an uneasy peace there until about um, 1820. Describe to us what were some of the instigating factors around the the, the beginning of conflict and who were the leaders that that led the resistance in in the first instance um, in, in this battle um, that lasted between, you know, 1822 and 1824. Who were some of the key players and how did it instigate itself?
1: Mm. So I think th- there's there's um, there's a little bit of conflict before 1822, 1819 um, there's some, uh, and it, but it, it, I guess it can't be really seen as part of the resistance war. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's misunderstanding, it's... Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems with convict stock workers and and Aboriginal women on the frontier, um, but it's not until um, yeah 1822 or so where I guess the numbers of sheep and cattle are really critical here, and they just start to expand from 1822. There's a change of government Macquarie, Macquarie. Government of has kind of tried to limit the settlement to just have a, a convict population that are farming the land and looking after some sheep and cattle. Governor Brisbane comes in with a new mandate to open up the West um, to, to wealthy stockholders and pastoralists. And so there's a kind of, at 22 there's a kind of land rush, I guess you'd say, to the West. And then the population, the European population, increases rapidly and the amount of land granted in the district, like, increases dramatically from a couple of thousand acres uh, to, you know, 100,000 within a year. It's just... Um, uh, Governor of Brisbane opens opens all that up. So obviously, 1822, there's a massive change in the presence of the Europeans west of the mountains, and that uh, causes conflict. There's also the fact that um, the, the amount of sheep and cattle coming across um, means that you know, Murradji traditional resources um, are being changed and depleted, and yeah. there's killing of, of of sheep and cattle, um, the odd sheep, the odd the odd cow for food. Um, but the, this is not, you know, this is not part of um, the British system. You can't just kill someone's cow for, um, you know, for food. And there's no tolerance of that situation by the British. Um, so, you know, that, um, that, that demands punishment under British law, which I guess is, is, um, is a cause for conflict. And, 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 and Wiradjuri people um, start stealing and attacking sheep and cattle uh, and that that escalates that escalates dramatically.
0: And if you think about the the, the damage that uh, sheep and cattle do to the soils, the the farm soils of the Wiradjuri people, and the waterways. I mean, if you have a flock of sheep that cross a a creek or or a river, that uh, muddies the water. Uh, uh, s- s- stirs up sediment and makes that water um, undrinkable in and around what might be a watering hole. Um, all yeah. these sort of um, things have have got a grate and 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 get on the nerves of the traditional owners, of, of course. Yeah, I, although
1: um, having said that, that, that's true, and I think that does happen. Um, but I think the effects of that might happen a bit later. The first, the first, um, the first uh, uh, elements of conflict. Are, Actually where people are taking cattle for their own right. food supplies and they start to they start to herd. Like Luca is caught up in, in in a battle um and he's his he and his um his his group of warriors, his war band, um are actually herding like forty cattle out and away for their own purposes. Um so that I, I'm not sure that the cattle had actually affected the environment that much, but it was it, the conflict begins really about cattle as a food supply.
0: They see it as an opportunity to 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 build something for themselves out of this.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it happened elsewhere in the frontier um, that uh, Aboriginal people were known to 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 steal a mob of cattle uh, and build fences around them and and, and basically, you know, um, manage them as a food supply. Um, and Major Mitchell later on says, you know, in the 1830s, that, that cattle is going to be the key for conflict. And if Aboriginal people can actually um, manage cattle, they would be very difficult to take their lands from. Um, and it's that's quite a perceptive, um, you know, analysis at that time. I think it's the the, the impact of cattle is, is in, in my mind, not so much in this at this point about the degradation of the landscape, but about it as a food supply. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how
0: you listen to the triple i where I'm speaking with uh, Stephen Gaps who is the author of a new book um Gaudiara, the first guerilla war of resistance the bathurst war of 1822 to 1824 um, I think another thing that um, people kind of, uh, I guess, forget or haven't acknowledged or haven't even thought about, Stephen, is that in the very, very early days of um, what we can call invasion, um, the 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 matchup was actually far more even than we first thought, because the 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 utility of um, of of a spear against a a musket that had to be reloaded and um, shot and stuffed down with. Um, uh, uh, with or with um, uh, gunpowder um, meant that the aboriginal people across the country, particularly in the southeast of Australia, could be far more nimble in the way that they attacked the the settlers
1: yeah, I guess you 'd say that the uh, the odds were much more even than we think um, and uh, i I think in in the bathist war what what is um there's a couple of, a couple of lessons that, that the colonists have learnt from the Sydney wars, um, and one is the use of horses. And at Bathurst, the use of horses with um, firearms is critical. Um, they, 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 send, they send letters to the governor saying, you know, we need horses here. We can't get to these people. They come and raid and, and take our stock and, and kill our shepherds, but we can't counterattack because we, we can't follow them into terrain that they know and, 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 you know, areas like the Cape and Valley, which is, which is um, you know, a labyrinth of valleys. Um, so there's this... Um, what happens at Bathurst is that there's a, firstly a call for a colonial cavalry because they understand that the only way they're going to defeat these Wiradjuri warriors is, is with the use of horses. Um, you know, a firearm's quite, you know, um, devastating, but... Marching around with a firearm is, is one thing, but riding yeah. around with a firearm is another. And so, just after the Bathurst War, that's when the native uh, the mounted police are formed um, as as, a, as an element on on the frontier for bushrangers and for against warriors. And that's 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 a real key moment in the frontier wars in general. I think where um, horses really come into play. And at Bathurst in 1924, one of the um, what can only be called massacre parties that went out was was around twenty mounted and armed colonists uh, who went out to, as as one one of the the leaders reminisced later, to to kill indiscriminately men and, men women and children. Uh, so yeah, there's
0: no there's absolutely no sugarcoating of, of this history. It's it's documented. Um, it happened. And it's something that should be on the conscience of, um, of every Australian. Um, uh, and when I say on the conscious, I don't mean um, uh, guilt should be felt by everyone because it's beyond our control. But to acknowledge that these things happen is a very, very important part of us moving forward as a country. Um, Stephen, uh, tell us a little bit about the fellow that was basically seen as the, the leader of the resistance, a fellow named Wendredyne.
1: Yeah, um, and you also mentioned before um, the other leaders too because one of the things that I found was I think the the this, the narrative in the past uh, about the Bathurst War, the first Wiradjuri War of Resistance has been really focused around Windradine. But during the research, um, these other names of other leaders came, came up all the time as well. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge them. And you do that it's throughout a, the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but certainly, certainly Winterdine is, um, the most significant, uh, and I think partly, partly because he has a relationship with the Sutter family, um, who, who actually, uh, it, it's rare in this, 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 um, you know, in the colonial archive anyway, um, actually mention his traditional name. Um, mm. uh, they actually know it, um they apparently you know, learnt some of the Wiradjuri language and were working with Wiradjuri people as opposed to other um, pastoralists and, and, and convict overseers, even the convict workers themselves didn't want to have anything to do with Wiradjuri people. But these small landholders realised, and there was a few of them, uh, that working with the, the Wiradjuri were, was, um, was beneficial to, to everyone
0: concerned. Yeah, and I think another thing that sort of when you when we're studying history like this, Stephen, is that you know often it's documented in the national archives um, because you know the the, the Aboriginal person or people may have something more to do with with some of the powers that be, and that was the case with uh, Windarriner, wasn't it? I mean, he actually met um, Governor Thomas Brisbane um, in uh, December of eighteen twenty-four, and so therefore the the, the I guess the observations and and the words that flow from those meetings by those that that observe and surround someone like the the governor mean that someone like Windrude Iron's name is going to be recorded in history probably far more prominently than than other people of the period. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And we're back to wrap up this conversation with Stephen. He was back on the line. Um, that dog in the background didn't tread on your foot and you didn't actually press a button to uh, cut us off, Stephen? <laughs> no,
1: it wasn't my dog, but we are in the park <laughs> with my dog,
0: yes. <laughs> Uh, look um, let's just wrap, wrap this up um, the book is called uh, Gundyara, uh the First Wiradjuri War of Resistance the Bathurst Wars of 1822 to 1824 it is out through uh, New South Wales uh, Publishing and it's all in all good bookstores and I encourage you to go to an independent local bookstore to get these things um, uh, Stephen uh, what are you working on now is there anything else that's uh, coming up that we can look forward to
1: uh, yeah. Um, well, obviously, the title of the book, The First world <laughs> War. Uh, yes, implies...
0: kind of presumptive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to um, start looking um, at further conflicts uh, as the frontier pushes west. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for your work. Um, this work is not easy work. It's, it's, it's labor intensive and it's emotionally draining. But um, th- for the likes of you, um, we all benefit from it. So, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. No, thank you. Now, uh, up next, I thought I would play one to you, because it is the penultimate show of the uh, year, that I would play to you one of my favourite interviews of the year, and it was with the wonderful Veronica Gorry. Uh, She released a book called Black and Blue that has been shortlisted for all sorts of things, including the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Um, It's a cracking, honest, and at times brutal, but also funny read. Um, so let us let me explain it as I set up the conversation with Veronica Gorry from earlier this year. Black and Blue is the story of an Aboriginal woman who worked as a police officer and fought for justice from within a system that, as we all know too well, attacks and kills our people on a regular basis. That woman is Veronica Gorry, a proud Gunai Kurnai woman, and the book is a remarkable story. Like the author herself, it is fearless, it is frank, and it's a true account of her life and times. Veronica is also the mother of three amazing kids, who I'm sure many of you would know. And now she is a proud grandmother. And it's with a great pleasure indeed that we welcome uh, Veronica to the mission this evening. Welcome to the mission. Thank you, Daniel.
2: Thank you for having me on your program.
0: Absolutely superb to have you here. It's been a long time coming. We've been toing and froing about all sorts of matters, you and I, um, over recent months. So it's good to be, good to actually have you on the show. Um, First of all, uh, thank you for this book. Uh, I reckon it adds to our collective story. Your story is part of the collective story and it's um, an amazing book. Um, How did the book come about in the first place?
2: Yeah, so in 2011, towards the end of my career, I was diagnosed with PTSD, um, anxiety and depression. And part of my PTSD, I was suffering from trauma and amnesia. So I was, um, a lot, I was losing a lot of my memories. And um, unfortunately, um, most of my memories that I have lost are my good ones. So I only remember bad stuff. But I started to write down and document what I could remember. And before too long, I had a book worth of memories
0: yeah right um you you speak in uh, as uh, you, you you write as you speak you um you you say things in, in plain language um it's like I'm sitting down beside you and you're telling us you know these stories and, and these details um you've witnessed the justice system from the inside um for those that don't know how did you end up actually becoming a police officer in the first place
2: so i joined through uh, through a program that um um Like, uh, they recruit Aboriginal people. It was an Aboriginal traineeship, so I did that for, it was 18 months, Mm -hmm. Um, so 12 months at TAFE, and then every Friday we would attend the academy to assimilate us to Blue, I guess, and um, to get us used to the academy lifestyle and being being in a pretty much predominantly white institution and a racist institution. But, um, yeah, so that's how the process went. But, um, and then the last, so after twelve months at the TAFE, we we um, we graduated with a diploma of justice, and then we went straight into the academy. And um, yeah, by there was uh, five of us, and then by the end of uh, the TAFE course, there was only four of us that made it. Unfortunately.
0: Um, you, you've witnessed the justice system, um, as I said, from the outside and, and from the inside. Um, this is a pretty deep question, but what what did you see in your time in the police force that can inform our understanding of things that are like that are going on at the moment, like the spate of deaths in custody that we're seeing at the moment? Five in the last month. What did you see within the police force that can give us an inkling as to why these things continue to happen?
2: Yeah, well, whilst I was in the police and um, I did see a lot of excessive use of force and brutality towards my people, especially um, I also witnessed and um, and it happens. that, you know, it's in, uh, a lot of racial profiling within the police. Mm-hmm. So if they saw a black or brown person there, they were deemed to be a criminal before even intercepted. But if you're black and brown, you're deemed to be a criminal um, and the likelihood of you being intercepted and detained and searched is really high And um, that's unfortunate, but um, that's the reality
0: of being a black or brown person. Yeah, you're right in in the book. Um, Police not only brutalise people with excessive force, but they are racist too. If they weren't racist prior to joining the force, in my experience, it seemed they quickly became so. What is it about the force and the system itself that makes people who join the force seemingly become more racist over time?
2: Oh, it's based on systemic racism and the, the whole, it's institutionalised racism as well. So, like, if you're, like, a minority, um, you're asked up straight away, like, it's so difficult to be a person of colour or an Aboriginal person in the police. Um, you're outnumbered in the first place. But, um, we, you know, we get it. we the tokenistic black person in the job. And, um, yep. you know, and all, all of us, and I, I, I won't speak for everyone, sorry, I'll speak for myself, but we go in there with good intentions, yep. and um, like myself, and unfortunately, um, you know, it's, it's it becomes too hard, like, to speak up and to speak out about um, stuff that I've witnessed in the past. It was so difficult, and I know I probably should have spoke up louder and... You know, and I, you know, I feel in that regard, I do feel complicit. Um, I probably should have spoke up loud and I should have spoke up more often. And, um,
0: but it, it's, it's not easy to do that when you are trying to, first of all, earn a living. You're trying to do the right thing by yourself and by your community. But you are surrounded by, um, you know, a system that is inherently racist, but it's also a system that, you um, that, uh, um, you know, persecutes our, our people on, on a daily basis. Um, yeah. uh, you, you, you you talked about your experience with also domestic violence as well, and you write a very vivid account of um, the, the violence that you suffered. I'm very sorry that you suffered that violence um, at the hands of someone you supposedly was supposed to love you. Um, where do you see the, the violence that is suffered by Aboriginal women um, every day um, and in higher rates. Where do you city, see that sitting into the the March for Justice movement? Is there enough being done to elevate the voices of Aboriginal women as part of that movement?
2: No, I think, um, it's just my opinion again, but I think a lot of Aboriginal voices are excluded um, and we're not, you know, our voices aren't being heard, which is, you know, which is know well, it's unfortunate but my book is timely in relation to those matters you know and that's in custody as well but um yeah the family violence I endured I mean you know i', I, I was subjected to it whilst I was pregnant as well and yeah. um you know and you know and I'm de- deeply sorry if, if I, you know I put my kids through a lot a fair bit actually and um and I made poor choices in my life but um you know you live and you learn, and um, you know my kids are my greatest inspiration inspiration and um, they're so amazing and I'm blessed to be there them actually
0: yeah they they are amazing and um, you know you've yeah. you've dedicated the book to to all three of them, and I know um, seeing through social media that they're extremely proud of you um, as as they should be um you touched upon it just then too veronica that the, the book itself is actually coming across um, uh, in an intersectional way, it touches upon issues that are really, really, really um, poignant at the moment. And I think the, the the thing about that is, is that the book um, itself is talking about issues that for us are timeless, um, but they've just come to the fore in, in the mainstream just, just recently. Um, do you have optimism or do you despair about the future of us addressing some of these matters?
2: Uh, but we'll, we'll be t- discuss, start talking about the Aboriginal deaths in custody. Like, we've had five in the last four weeks. I don't feel optimistic, and I'm usually um, an optimistic person. Um, mm. I just think that, um, you know, like, You know, this year in April, it will mark the 30th anniversary since the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Destiny Cassidy. And of the 339 recommendations, and I know a majority have been implemented, but since then um, a lot of them have been defunded, so we're not looked after. But um, in saying that, um, a new foundation has been formed, and it's called the Dajewal Foundation, and it's for the families... um, Sorry, I'll go back. It was set up by April Day, who's the daughter of the late Tanya Day, who um, died in custody. Um, And this foundation solely um, relies heavily on donations to keep their uh, foundation afloat. And this foundation will support families that are going through... Aboriginal deaths in custody, and whilst we're dealing with the five deaths in custody that we've just had in the last four weeks, we're also having other coronial, um inquiries commence in relation to past Aboriginal deaths in custody, so it's like a vicious cycle, and it's like we're continuing, as Aboriginal people, we're always um, grieving, it's relentless and it's overbearing.
0: Yeah, the uh, Dajara Foundation actually launched uh, this past Sunday. And if you want to actually contribute, find out what the foundation does, you can go to their website, which is dajara.com.au. Let me spell that out for you. It's D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A.com.au. It's an organisation that supports families who have lost loved ones whilst in custody. And it's um, if, if there's a cause to support at the moment, it is that one. Because, um, as you just said, Veronica, the the, the trauma of this just seems to keep on rolling as if, if there's not a new death then there's a new inquest and there's the, all the harrowing stories that come out of those inquests that just keep that trauma rolling on and on.
2: That's right that's correct and also the coronial inquest um, could go on to up to three weeks and um, it's a costly exercise for the family and um, it's important for the family to be present and um, as traumatizing as it is, um, and it, it really is. I mean, it's like they're reliving, you know, re, mm. reliving the, the the death of the loved one again, because they're they're witnessing, you know, sometimes the moments the loved one take their last breath, and it's so so disheartening. It's so sad, but um, the Dajwa Foundation is um supports families throughout that process, and it's an amazing um, foundation, and everyone should um support.
0: Absolutely, them. get get on board with it. One thing I like in the um, at the very start of the book, the introduction that you you do, you um, you stipulate that whenever you refer to the mission, um, you're yep. referring to uh, Lake Tyre's Aboriginal Trust. Um, yep, for people are. that don't, yeah. So people that don't know about that particular part of the world, um, what does it mean to you, and, and and what does it what does it mean to to your mob?
2: Uh, it's home for us, so um, we go there all the time, we go there to pay our, our respects to our, our past ancestors, but um, that's where my father grew up, that's where my grandmother was born, you know, my grandfather. Um, yeah, it's just home for us and yeah, it's a special place and I absolutely love going back there.
0: Yeah, it's a absolute, you know, it's actually paradise actually, it's such a, such a beautiful um, part of the world. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Before I let you go, uh, Veronica, you, you, I heard in another view, another interview, because I've been doing a bit of research and I've been listening to what you've had to say. Yeah, said you said that you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been stalking you on, on the airwa- on the airwaves. Um, yeah, good on you. you. You say that you like to um, write as you speak, and that that puzzled me a little bit because when I read the uh, the, the book, there was no swearing whatsoever in it.
2: <laughs> and, yeah, I've got a potty mouth, hey. Yeah, so, all right. So I didn't that's a, probably a mistruth there. I won't say lie because I don't <laughs> lie, but um. Yes. So the way I write is the way I speak, and I want the reader to feel like I'm sitting beside them having a yarn. Because as black we're you know we're the best storytellers, and our ancestors have been doing it for generations. So that's how um, I want the reader to feel like I'm sitting there having a yarn with them.
0: Yeah. Look, uh, dear listener, um, uh, uh, Veronica could could swear for Australia if uh, (laughs) if there was a contest in it but uh, she's uh, she's uh, put on her, her her manners this evening and uh, she's uh, um, been very generous with her time and very generous with the book if you haven't got it um, go and get it. it's black and blue it's out now in all good bookshops uh Ronnie, Ronnie, thank you so much for your time um It would be great to get you back on the show actually just to talk about a whole range of things because I know that you're across oh. a number of issues um, that you think about deeply so it'd be good just to have you on um, on the show again just for, for a yarn about um, whatever we want to yarn about basically.
2: Yeah, it's so deadly Daniel and thank you for having me on the show and I would love to come back. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.